Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpha for the union pilots of JetBlue. Now from New York, Ride Report. Well, hello, welcome back to another episode of Ride Report. I'm your host, J.R. Hall, JetBlue Alpha Central Air Safety and FOCA Gatekeeper, and finally done with training, a 220 type rated first officer. If you haven't caught the last few episodes, we do highly encourage you to do so with everything kind of coming together flying-wise. Big episode with our uh, system scheduling committee going over 25X, parent disruptions, emergency assignments, the long list of stuff. And most recently, JJ Hughes, Royce Flights join us from Government Affairs talking about the ongoing important work that they're doing and the benefits of the Alpha Pack. I'd also be remiss if I did not send a huge thank you to uh, Mike Kendrick for taking over the hosting duties here for a number of weeks. And then uh, additionally, Eric Davis from Alpha National for being able to piece it all together. And lastly, from communications, Dave Burgess and his crew for making sure that Ride Report came together for you guys while I was away in training. Hey, real quick, we do have a lot of content, a lot of episodes back, a lot of good stuff to jump into today. But if there's something that we're missing, please let us know. If there's something that you would love to hear, we'd like to go get it for you. Send Rod Report a PDR with your show suggestions to bring you the information that you need. As life is kind of coming back to somewhat normal, we're still doing a little bit of virtual interaction here with Ride Report on the podcast. We were talking about the guests that we're going to have and all the way from the West Coast. Joining us is uh, Central Air Safety Chairman Blake Kelly. Blake, how are you doing? Great, JR. Great to be here again. What time is it over there? Uh, too early. <laughs> <laughs> Fatigue Committee Chairman Sean King. Sean, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, JR. Thanks for having me. Sean, real quick, I know this is the first time for uh, for you and the next guest I'll introduce here in a second, but uh, join us here on Ride Report. Real quick, give us a digest of your time at JetBlue and uh, additionally serving with ALPA. Yeah, sure, JR. Uh, thanks. I've been at JetBlue for about 13 years now. I was uh, previously on the P2P committee, and then I've been the fatigue chair since uh, January of 2020. Excellent. And last but not least, Michael Bora, Mike, ASAP committee chair. Thanks for joining us. How are you? How are you doing, JR? Give us uh, a real quick digest of uh, your history at JetBlue and with ALPA. Oh, I started in 04 as an FO in the 320, became a 190 captain in 05, and uh, was uh, just lucky enough to uh, get checked out on the A220 in February. And uh, I've had the privilege of being the uh, ALPA ASAP chair for about uh, two and a half years now, and I've been involved in ASAP for a good 10 years. So it's, it's, a, it's a privilege and an honor to do it. And between the, the three of our guests today, a lot of uh, varied background, a lot of really in-depth experience, and a lot of it pinpointed precisely to safety, which is going to be the, uh, the big topic that, uh, that we discuss here on this episode of Ride Report. To uh, transition to you, Blake, just overall with Central Air Safety, it, it, it does encompass a number of subcommittees. It touches a lot of different areas. As far as uh, central air safety and, and everything kind of picking up together, what's the the state of central air safety with JetBlue Alpa? Uh, JR, very busy. Um, as, as you highlighted, uh, we're going into a, an interesting summer peak season. I mean, as pilots have been here a while, we know uh, summer is always a challenging time for the operation, but we're, we're obviously coming off of a, the heels of a pandemic where a lot of departments are going to be having trouble being staffed. Uh, we're going to be maximizing resources for, for planes and pilots, so it's going to be a challenge. And uh, a lot of other interesting, exciting projects also going on, too, that we're involved in. So we're, we've been very busy. 
And just recently stood up, I, I know a number of weeks ago, we were soliciting for uh, volunteers to join a new committee contained under the Central Air Safety Umbrella as well as the shorthand ADO committee. Can you give us a little bit more about that? You know, if you go to the first Ride Report episode, I, I kind of talk about uh, the different subcommittees that make up the Central Air Safety Committee, and, and we've had six, uh, but we just recently created a seventh subcommittee called ADO, which stands for Aircraft Design and Operations. It's meant to be a, a really a catch-all subcommittee to be the subject matter expertise of JetBlue pilots regarding matters of, uh, you know, flight standards, SOPs, airworthiness, MELs, charting, uh, nav database issues. These are all issues that kind of got farmed out across center of safety that really should have been centralized under a, a central subcommittee leadership. So. We've stood that committee up. It was approved by the MEC um, early in quarter one of this year, and we've collected a, a great set of volunteers that are going to be led by Captain Doug Marchese as the subcommittee chairman. And again, you're talking about an awful lot of work. I mean, in everything you just mentioned from from charting to aircraft operation to interaction with the pilot, it's per fleet, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's encompassed the, the work across all the fleets, which is, you know, unique fleet to fleet. So obviously the Airbus and 190 fleet, we have the 220 fleet coming on. This is also going to cover things like as we go to ETOPS uh, and other special programs like CPDLC. You know, it's having pilots that can be experts in that area to help be a resource for the company, but also utilize resources nationally as well as a national union. So now that we're transitioning into summer, and I, and I think a, a lot of us can take a look back in the last 18 months and, and maybe potentially, I don't want to you know, jinx it in any way, shape or form, but take a little bit of a breath and go, okay, I think that may well be behind us. I think we may have turned the corner, but we're turning the corner and we're seeing everything clap back together, if you will. And now we're transitioning into summer, which with uh, us here at JetBlue is traditionally a running hot style mentality. And we're seeing a lot of the same stuff transition into summertime, right, Blake? Oh yeah. Uh, at the time of this recording, we, uh, we've had a couple challenging uh, weekends uh, with the typical things that challenge a, a summer operation. So uh, obviously summer weather creates uh, opportunities for uh, IROPs. You know, another thing is even though our flight counts, uh, pilots have seen that they've not returned to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, right now, our block hours are actually at 2019 levels. And that's just because our stage lengths have gotten longer where we brought back more transcon flying. So uh, from a staffing perspective for pilots, we're we're right there where we were in 2019. And yet we know we have a lot of pilots uh, in training or still coming off dequal or transitioning fleets with all these bids. So we know the efficiency of the company right now is uh, not every pilot's putting to bear in the summer schedule. So we all fly a lot more. Our schedules get fuller. We might pick up more trips or have to uh, uh, have a higher uh, ALVs and so forth. So we're all flying very busy. Uh, all, every airplane's flying. I know we have some parts in the desert, but I'm sure they'll be coming out soon if, if the flying picks up this way. But we know we carry more MELs uh, in the summer operation to keep the metal moving. So that creates more complexity in the operation as well. All of this stuff puts a lot of pressure on us as pilots. So we just have to be ready to deal with those pressures, which will be equal to, if not greater than previous summers we've experienced. 
Now, I know within Central Air Safety and kind of the downturn, uh, we were able to kind of take advantage of reinventing how we do some some processes within Central Air Safety. And one of those was a significant event or SIG event, as we call it within Kazakh. Can you touch on some of the additional summertime challenges that we see? I know we're going to talk to Sean and get really in-depth on uh, fatigue, but specifically fumes, perhaps a significant event and continuing operation you know, aircraft refusal for a, a myriad of reasons. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things we've been able to enhance is uh, through our discussions for safety uh, LOA AIP, we got, we have an agreement in principle and we're still working on the safety LOA final language, but we got uh, the company to include us on notifications of uh, what, what they call SIG events, maintenance control at the SOC. If there's a, an event that meets certain criteria, we'll send out an email notification uh, throughout the company. Uh, and there's even an ancillary process where the safety department may also put out a notification as well that we're a part of. Uh, we've been able to be included in those now. So when we get notified of that, the leadership portion of the Central Safety Committee will identify that event, uh, reach out to the crew. Typically, we'll email the crew, uh, most likely to your JetBlue emails. But sometimes we'll be able to get your contact info and call you uh, just to reach out and see how you're doing. Be there as, as a support, as a fellow pilot. One of the things, you know, we, we help with is, you know, the reporting that will come likely after a SIG event. So these events, um, you know, typically are going to be triggering mandatory reporting of the company. So we're going to help you with that. We're going to help mm. you with uh, what you need to think about as far as an ASAP report. But one of the things we're always concerned about, especially in the summer operations we've been talking about, is typically you've, if this SIG event has occurred, you know, we're, we're concerned about, are you going to be supported to continue to fly or do you feel like you're safe to continue to fly right now? We, we know comparing ourselves to other airlines in the industry, typically there's a flight ops process or a joint process with flight ops and, 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 and the union is assessing the pilot's ability to continue their duty. You know, if you've been involved in a significant event, let's say shutting down an engine and returning back to the field and declaring an emergency. Um, sure. For some people, they could be fine after that. For, for a lot of pilots, though, it's, uh, I think I'm done for the day. I think I've had my one emergency. And for some of us, it's just a, we need a cooling off period. We need a couple hours to collect ourselves before we can go fly. That's unique to every individual. It's a hard assessment to do and assess yourself. So we try to intersect, uh, interject ourselves, try to talk to uh, the pilots involved. And if, we, if they bring it up or we, we assess that they might need to not fly, we, we try to help them with that process. Unfortunately, the company doesn't have one of their own to proactively remove the pilot. So we either have to engage flight ops leadership or encourage the pilots call it fatigue, which is usually the easiest method of getting the pilots removed. Uh, and Sean will talk about how the fatigue program will have the protections involved in addressing any, any pay implications there. But that's usually the safest course of action is just if you feel like you shouldn't be flying, you probably shouldn't and the call it fatigue and call it a day. Now, you mentioned the safety LOA. Uh, we've had several communications come out over the last few months about the ongoing process in, in the, the conversations uh, with the company. But as far as uh, where it is right now, give us a good broad overview of the, the status of safety LOA. Well, safety LOA uh, process is ongoing. We reached an agreement in principle uh, August of last year. And uh, since then, we've been working on a full uh, contractual language of the LOA, which is a it's a very detailed, long process of passing proposals with the company, 
to get reach a middle ground on on what the language is. We've been doing that virtually uh, really since August last year, but we were able to meet in person in April in Orlando, which uh, was a huge breakthrough because it's just a lot easier to get a lot of this stuff done in person. And uh, we've reached a, an ability to TA certain sections of the LOA. We're still working on the remaining sections and have a meeting scheduled in July uh, with virtual meetings up to that point. One of the items covered on these safety LOA discussions is revising a, a current safety LOA we have, which is the fatigue risk management LOA currently in our CBA. We've been able to work on uh, TAing, revising a lot of that LOA with a lot of uh, substantial improvements that Sean can get into that will uh, be ratified by our MEC. Would it be fair to call that a, a rather large overhaul of our fatigue program? It'd be fair. I mean, uh, it's not. There's not major substantial change to the program. But I would say there's a lot of little enhancements that really add up uh, for for value to the pilot group. It definitely we everything from reformatting it and changing a lot of the language because it was really not formatted. It was kind of uh, this our fatigue LOA that's currently in existence uh, came before we even had a CBA, so it's not in the right. It's not even in the right format and language uh, to be in. Uh, in addition to our contracts. We've been able to do that and add these uh, uh, enhancements to the program. I want to change gears now to reporting. We're, we're sitting here talking about fatigue. We're very familiar with a, a fatigue report and the requirements on that. We're going to discuss ASAP here in a little bit. But as far as, and to even go back to reaching out after a significant event and the Central Air Safety Committee is ready to assist with a pilot in any kind of required reporting. Can we talk about some of the differences in the reporting programs specifically? Sir JR, I'll, I'll do my best because it, it can get complicated. We try to, as a pilot, as a, as a center of safety, we're always trying to simplify it the best we can. Um, the FCIR is simply a mandatory report uh, required by the company. Uh, that's the way to see it. Uh, an FCIR should be filed when it's required by the company. The requirements are outlined in the, the flight operations manual. Uh, and, and specifically in Appendix A, which lists out every event that the company mandates and expects an FCIR to be submitted. A lot of regulatory requirements and, and just individual company requirements drive those uh, when those an FCIR is required. Essentially, that is a report that it allows to just notify the company of an event. That's its primary purpose for the company. It's just a, a way to inform the pilot to inform the company that this event happened Here's the high-level details. It's not a safety reporting program in that uh, there's a there's an actual detailed follow-up process and data analytics of those reports. It's really used as a communication tool, and that report is uh, they've curtailed the distribution of that report uh, over the years, so it's gotten smaller and smaller. But it's in no way confidential. Uh, you can expect that senior leadership and other management personnel uh, all across the company will see that FCIR. Now, other safety reporting, uh, which we call, or you can call it voluntary reporting, is the Aviation Safety Action Program, or ASAP report. And the company also has a uh, something they call the Safety Action Report. These are actual confidential safety reporting programs where pilots can report Anything from a safety event to a safety concern to a mistake they made or a mistake they maybe saw someone else make. But even those two programs have stark differences about what they're for and how they work. We as the as Alpha have been always been advocating for ASAP. Uh, ASAP's been in our industry since the late 90s, and we've continually grown on that program to be a collaborative program with 
the union, the company, and the FAA to work safety issues. So the association has uh, a current involvement in that. We're, we, we see every report. We work on every report. Every report gets reviewed by the event review committee, which is those three parties, and um, gets actions in some way. Or um, The safety action report comes out of a requirement for a safety management system. Uh, so it's a regulatory requirement. The company must have a confidential reporting system, which ASAP satisfies, but only satisfies it for the pilot group. Because uh, currently in JetBlue, only pilots, dispatchers, and, and, and tech ops have an ASAP program. So there's a lot of work groups that still don't. So the safety action report has helped to bridge the gap to give them an alternative. So we have two options as pilots. And so we can fill out a safety action report or fill out an ASAP report. But however, again, uh, the association is currently not involved in the safety action report. That is something that's part of the LOA discussions that we would somehow become a part of that. But right now it's just ASAP and ASAP is the only thing that gives the pilots both FA protections, FA certificate protections and company protections from discipline. So we always advocate that uh, almost every situation you want an ASAP report to make sure you secure those protections. It doesn't prohibit you to also fill out a safety action report. If, if a pilot chooses to do both, that is, that is fine. But, uh, we certainly, I don't, can't really think of a situation we advocate for, go ahead and fill out a safety action report, but don't fill out an ASAP. Just for the, the general idea of the differences between the two, if I'm a pilot and I'm unsure as to which report I need to actually utilize, if I were to compare the difference and say, bar none, baseline, if I think my certificate is in jeopardy, the very next thing I'm doing is filing an ASAP. Is that fair to say? Because we don't want to take anything away from a safety action report. It's a very valid, it's very valuable information to the company. But there's that one little definitive difference. Is Would that be a fair assumption to make in a pilot trying to determine the difference? What is the report I need to send right now? Yes and no, JR. I mean, I, I, I definitely think if you're thinking that, then that's hands down, uh, you're going to go to the ASAP. But one of the misconceptions, and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, Captain Mike Bohr is going to get into this, is that's the only time you fill out an ASAP, is when you have that tinkling feeling of you did something wrong or your certificate's at jeopardy. And uh, we, we're trying to get past that misconception because ASAP's not only meant for when you think you might get in trouble. Uh, ASAP is also a way to, to vocalize safety issues, either a safety event that maybe had no, no, no fault of the pilot's, it was someone else or something else in the system or a safety concern. Hey, I think that we're doing this wrong and I think it should be looked at. ASAP can do and, and takes in all those uh, types of reports and does, and does action them. So does the safety action report, but in, in ASAP, we get better visibility as an association and then better visibility in our partner with the FAA and with the company to, to get that visibility and take action. So. Yes, I agree, JR. Your, your point is, is valid that if you have that thought at all, if you're ever in doubt, fill it out. Fill out an ASAP. But that shouldn't be the only thing that motivates us to fill out ASAP reports. Well, I'd like to bring in Mike Bohr to the conversations as well, JetBlue Alpha ASAP chair. Mike, when it when it comes to ASAPs and, and ASAP reports specifically, what do you, as a, a member representing the pilots in the event review committee, what do you guys look for? What is the crucial stuff that you need in a report that comes from a pilot? Well, we want the unvarnished truth. 
sometimes it can be professionally unnerving to recount an event where a mistake was made, but it's a requirement of the program. So we need the details of the event. Did you run any checklists? Were the checklists easy or hard to find? Was the procedure cumbersome or hard to follow? Uh, did you do any other kind of coordination with other resources, your in-flight team, air traffic control, dispatch, maintenance? Uh, we also like to see ancillary items in the report, uh, like was there a logbook entry made? And of course, lastly, we would like your thoughts and or recommendations on how the event could be better handled in the future. You know, you bring up a really good point with making the entry into the maintenance logbook where some people might just assume like, well, obviously I did that. But just because it's not in the report, it kind of does leave it in somewhat of a ambiguous state. Correct. And the ERC, the event review committee, is looking at that from the total perspective. And it, it just it, the more information in the report, the, the fewer questions we will have in making our determination about the disposition of the report. All right. Myths and misconceptions. Even though ASAP, like Blake said, has been around for a very long time and it has been a cornerstone safety reporting method for uh, JetBlue pilots here for, for a while. There are still a lot of, of myths and some people might take away as somewhat frightening in cases, interactions with ASAP reporting. In your experience along the way with ASAP, the first one that I can think of is, is that it is a voluntary reporting program, which means you don't really have to, but it's built to protect you. What's some other stuff you'd like to highlight about the, uh, the ASAP program in and of itself? Yeah, so maybe a little background and then a, a quick paragraph or so on how it works and then a, a couple other comments. So as you said, uh, ASAP is a voluntary program. It was designed to track and trend safety lapses and regulatory escapes. After all, most errors made in the cockpit are only known to the two pilots who were there. So it gives the airline and the regulator a lens into the operation that they never would have access to without this program. And in return for this access and to encourage voluntary reporting, the FAA agreed that any sanction from the event will be waived in exchange for this data. The program was so good that the airlines even caught on and decided that they would treat these errors the same way. So as a result, ASAP provides significant protections to the flight crew, no certificate action or company discipline for reports that are accepted into the program. So how does it work? So the ERC or Event Review Committee will consist of reps from three entities. You have the regulator, the FAA, the company, JetBlue, and the union, Alpha. And all three of us must come to consensus on the disposition of each report. That doesn't mean we always agree, quite the contrary. But it means that all three agree that a particular course of action, coaching, counseling, and even training that would mitigate future risks to both the system and the particular flight crew. And as you mentioned, and as Blake mentioned, ASAP is not just for regulatory lapses or pilot deviations. It's there for any time there's a reduction in the safety margins that are built into our systems. In fact, the best ASAPs we get are the ones where an error is made and it is tracked because we can track and trend how the error is made and how it was tracked. So many times we receive reports about an error that a flight crew made, and we are then able to decide if the controls we have in place, which are our SOPs, actually fit the operation 
And if not, we can action appropriate departments to change or add SOPs to help mitigate future problems. In other words, others benefit from your reports. So when it comes to ASAPs, and, and we used to bring it up of maybe even joke from time to time, you know, oh, I hope your ASAP gets accepted. It has, <laughs> have, have there been any changes in, in the positive towards that and, and really to, again, demystify the program, right? Yeah, the latest MOU revision from the FAA, which came out about a couple of months ago, was when we actually adopted it, was that reports are automatically accepted into the program unless they are excluded by the ERC. Basically, if there's an intentional act, a willful disregard, or the event involves commission of a felony or drugs and alcohol, then the ERC would likely vote to exclude the report from the program. So your reports are automatically accepted until they are excluded, and there would have to be a serious reason why it would be excluded. We'll transition over to fatigue here in a little bit, but Mike, just one more question to to wrap up before we get into the uh, latest enhancements as Blake was talking about earlier within our fatigue program. When it comes to ASAP, how, what are we looking like reporting-wise right now? Are we seeing a an, an increase? Is, is everything kind of basically level? We're actually seeing a nice uptick in reporting during COVID, obviously, with our flight counts so low, the reporting actually mirrored the ups and downs in the flight schedule. But lately, we're getting a a fairly good increase in reporting rate, and it's because there's there's many factors, but there's going to be a a lot of pressure in the operation this summer, as Blake mentioned, and we're starting to see the effects of taking time off, pilots on voluntary leaves, and just a general proficiency that come with low flight hours and low flight counts. Sure. So... uh, word of the wise, stay vigilant. But if you need the program, we're here to help. Again, that's just one of the very things that we do handle and and handle quite often within central air safety. And it's as easy as, as reaching out to us via either a, a PDR or, or an email or at b6alpha.org. All of our telephone numbers are down there. If you need something, reach out to us, let us know. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Sean King, let's talk about fatigue. Blake had mentioned that, that there were some some overhauls that taken place, but this is stuff that, that you and your group have been working on f- for quite a while. So again, thanks for joining us, but high-level overview of what can us yeah, as pilots expect within the LOA. The biggest change is the readability, uh, getting it to match the language of the CBA. And then uh, the nuts and bolts, uh, the biggest one in there is the uh, now if you uh, have a non-concurrence of an FDP due to fatigue, it will automatically be determined to be system driven and you won't have to file a fatigue report, which is a, a nice change for us. Uh, we did uh, clarify Alpa's role as part of the FRMT and added the uh, CASIC chair to the fatigue review board. Um, some other enhancements, uh, fatigue assessments following an event were something that the company was doing. And now uh, we've added that to the recommended reporting section of the fatigue LOA. If there's any changes to the assessment, we'll, we'll both have to agree on it and we can we share the data as well provided a process for handling a fatigue call out when the report wasn't filed. So now there's a step-by-step process for getting that report. And if we don't, by a certain timeline, it'll be determined to be non-system. And then um, one of the things, if uh, you had several non-system fatigue call outs before we had to do a non-disciplinary call with the chief pilot, now we can determine the amount of follow-up needed. So if it's an ongoing issue of something that we're all aware of, we don't have to call the chief pilot every time. So that will 
eliminate that. And then we provided a way for the company to do more proactive fatigue surveys that we'll be involved with in sharing the data as well. Before everybody tries to go back, rewind the podcast to listen to what you just said about, wait, 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 hold on, no fatigue report. What are you talking about? Let's dive into that one just a little bit more. (laughs) Because this will be in in some way, shape, form, a, a rather big change to somebody that may have had to follow or may have forgotten or is is nervous about, you know, making that decision because it's a required report. But highlight that one more time on, on the non-concurrence of uh, FTP. Sure. You're in the airplane. The company calls you up because you're approaching your MOT and you do not want to uh, extend because you are fatigued. You can just say that you are fatigued. It's automatically system driven, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. It means it's going to be paid by the company and a report is not required. That's the end of the process for you. We do recommend if if you do have some insight, you can fill out a fatigue hazard report, but again, not required. Well, and that's a great point because every situation would be different when it comes to not only the individual assessing their own fitness for duty, but what are the factors that are playing into that? While it's great to not have to be required to send a report there's still a lot of beneficial information. And if it pulls away that little block of making that hard call, fantastic. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, what can we still take away from that one particular pilot's event? And, and what can we learn from it and give back to the company? We have an ability to hold people accountable to make sure that those deficiencies are corrected to better improve the entire system overall, right? Correct. Before we get into the actual fatigue callout process, can we highlight a couple of different terms vernacular-wise with fatigue, the, the system-driven and non-system-driven? What, what are the main differences between the both of those? Sure. System-driven just means it's, uh, the, the fatigue was a result of something that happened at work and it's the company. Uh, so you know, a hotel issue is a company's responsibility. So you know, that will be determined to be system-driven. Uh, mechanical delay you went unplanned into the walkal period. So system driven, uh, non-system would be like, you know, we're all, we all have families, your dog kept you up, your kid kept you up. You weren't able to report fit for duty. Clearly that's not the company's fault. So that's going to be non-system driven and that will come out of your PTO bank. And somewhat of a wide net when it comes to some of these little individual reasons and making that determination of correct. And they're both very legitimate fatigue calls. You are fatigued. You can't fly that's all protected under the fatigue program, but just different determination why. Well, and a fantastic segue into the very next thing I wanted to bring up, the fatigue call-out process. It's can't say it enough, just be clear, use plain language. There's no need to to dance around whether or not I am or am not, or I want to use a different word, or you kind of hit, right. hit, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, picking up what I'm dropping. Yes. Call crew services and say that you're fatigued. It's that easy. Um, we don't want you to say you're tired. We don't want to say you don't know if you're going to feel like you're going to be able to fly. You just call up and you say you're fatigued. Crew services know when they hear that word, what that means for them. So the best practice is you call out fatigue for yourself. Say there's a crew and you're both fatigued. You call out fatigue for yourself and you hand the phone over to the other pilot and then he can or she can state that they are fatigued as well. That way both pilots are in the same 
uh, frame of reference, they both know that they called in fatigue and they both know that they're going to have to fill out a fatigue report at that point. And then after that, crew services will bark you as FTP on your schedule, which uh, that's the uh, code for a system-driven fatigue. And that's going to be a placeholder until we can review your report. And is that something that we might see on on Flicka if we if we go and look at Jet Crew? Is that yes? That's literally the code that we'll see on there. Correct. Yep. So we see that we know the process is working. Correct. And then uh, after that, they put you into rest, or if you called while you're in rest, you'll, you'll stay in rest at that point. They'll rework your schedule, and then you need to fill out the uh, pilot fatigue report under the GYMS app, which uh, is pretty self-explanatory when you go to fill out, and then uh, you have 48 hours after your call out or the end of your pairing to fill that out. And one more time on the timeline, as far as number one, we're utilizing the GEMS app, which is on, on EFB. You could also find it through the, through the company website as well, but a PDR is definitely not going to satisfy that report. Is that right? I mean, you would, you'd probably just drive them over to the, to the correct place to go file the report. Correct. And if you would like help reading your fatigue report, which we're happy to do, uh, the PDR is a great way to get uh, us in, in the loop on that. You can just go ahead and copy, submit what you're thinking of submitting for your report into the PDR, and that'll help us uh, with your report. Okay. So when it comes now to pay, we've just kind of reviewed the fatigue call-out process, and now we know that the system is working the way that it does. What does the pilot look for as far as accuracy within pay and protections? So uh, once you are removed, you're treated as a disrupted pilot, which is in uh, Section 25X of the contract. And uh, provides all the pay protections of a, a normal uh, disrupted pilot. Okay. Uh, once you call and fill out your report, it's protected under the program. And uh, any fatigue call out that's accepted will not be part of a dependability review. So I like to think of that as another protection. To be protected, it can't be part of the big five, like an ASAP report, like Min Mike mentioned earlier. And then also, if you were to move yourself from duty due to other factors while claiming fatigue, that would not be accepted or if there's uh, related absence patterns that are part of, you know, that would show abuse of the program, then that's not going to be protected. Sure. But other than that, it's going to be protected under the fatigue program. And a way to, to kind of transition to the next question that I had, and I'm sure we, we all as pilots are kind of curious as to how this all gets deliberated. How would one, you know, find that I was claiming fatigue or, or otherwise, and it actually wasn't the case. There's, there's a combination very similar to, ASAP, right? Where it's it's us as um, you know fatigue reps for JetBlue Alpha and the company together going through these reports, not just for accuracy checks, but to to ensure that everything we need in that report is contained, right? Yes. So uh, Heather, JetBlue manager of fatigue, and her team they they combine all the reports, and then we review them twice a month. So uh, each meeting from the previous meeting, we'll go over all the uh, reports, but. When we receive them and uh, Heather receives them, they're all de-identified. We get screenshots of your schedule, screenshots of the pairing as it was scheduled, screenshots of the pairing as it was operated with all the delays mixed in. And then we get the notes from uh, crew services as well mixed in. And then we go through the reports and determine ourselves whether we think they should be system driven or non-system driven. We submit those and then we'll discuss any reports that we disagreed on, or if there looks like a, a trend is forming, then we can discuss those. Or also a JSET code is assigned for statistical tracking purposes. That way we can go back and say it's a hotel issue. We, we know this percentage of fatigue callouts were hot, hotel issues. So we can also discuss whether the JSET codes we think were correct or not for the situation. 
what is this group called? As the FRMT, I think. So. And it's comprised of, we're thinking, equal balance of JetBlue Alpha representatives and company representatives, right? Correct. Yeah. So it's uh, me and four other committee members right now, but we assign one committee member per meeting and then we go through with the JetBlue management, one person from them. And these JSIC codes, if that spooks anybody and think like, well, what, what are they grabbing this information? What, what do they mean with this stuff? Tell us real quick what that is and how that's used. It's just uh, for our statistical tracking purposes, we uh, have a fatigue review board that meets quarterly and we go over the trends and pr the highest percentage of fatigue callouts. We identify the hotels with the highest callouts. We go through bases uh, with their callout rates. And so it's just used for statistical tracking purposes. And then as far as the deliberation, I'm sure this is gonna come for better or worse, a, a conversation as far as determining who is, uh, how do we code this? And this goes back to the system-driven versus non-system-driven. Correct, yeah. So uh, after the meeting, they'll be coded as system-driven, which we mentioned FTP, or FTG will be non-system-driven. So after the meeting, the company gives us two weeks to do any follow-up. So if your fatigue report was determined to be non-system-driven, we're going to call you and uh, walk you through that. And several times we've called pilots and they have provided more information that wasn't in the report, and that might determine to make it system-driven versus non. So uh, that, that two-week period gives us that time to do that follow-up, you know, match our schedule with someone else's schedule with their time off. And after that two weeks is when they'll send over the changes if there is a change to uh, crew planning or crew pay, and then they will change the codes on your schedule to reflect the final decision. So how does this decision-making process go down? Do you guys sit down around a table, if you will, stack of papers of reports that are ready to go and go through one by one? Or is there some way that both camps review the same information and then come together? Yes, we review the information independently and then we have a, a Spotfire website that we enter our decision and then discuss the ones that we would like to discuss. Something else that, that I know pilots are most likely aware of want to ask you about fatigue hazard reports and it's kind of unique it's again it's not you're not saying that you're fatigued when you submit one of these but this is really a long course of business you've identified as a pilot something that you think could very well be a fatiguing situation that is huge beneficial information Right. So if you were to fill out a hazard report, it's the same report under GEMS. And then about the eighth selection down, it asks you what kind of report this is and whether it's a pilot call out or a fatigue hazard report. A fatigue hazard report, I think, is one of the biggest ways we can learn of fatigue situations here at the company. Because if you didn't call out fatigue, chances are no one knows about it. No one knows that you were really you know, fatigued later on. So much like the ASAP program, it's information that's not readily available unless you provide it. We can really learn a lot if uh, we got more fatigue hazard reports from pilots. And I want to I want to transition into what makes up a great fatigue report. But before we get into to that, sticking with the fatigue hazard report, I mean, this is all very very personal stuff that comes to the individual pilot, right? Because everybody's right. going to have different thresholds and different different ways to view something. And contained within that, is there is there any one reason that you see that stands out above the rest? What would what would be a personal driver? One guy may have an ability to do sixteen hour days consecutively. Some guy might have the ability to transition from AM to PM with with the greatest of ease, but some may not. 
Yeah, anytime, I mean, there's different chronotypes, whether you're a morning person or a night person, all fatigue is very individualized. What is the makeup of a good fatigue report? Because there, there are some things, you know, people will say, oh, you know, make sure you build it to protect yourself. And we've determined that there is a process to make sure that what's contained in that report is legitimate and correct, but above right. all, factual. Yes. From your recommendation in in you and your team sitting down and going through these fatigue reports, what is the best overall makeup of of a fatigue report to give you all the information you think you need the first time around? Much like an ASAP, anything that uh, is specific information that you can provide us, especially that we can't see that's in crew track. So, you know, we're not going to know about the hotel or the hotel transportation or any of that stuff from looking at crew track. So any of that, those details are good. The three biggest factors for t- fatigue are time of day. Are you in a walkle? You know, there's that afternoon circadian drop. Uh, time since your last sleep and the difficulty of the task being performed. So if you think of those three things, when you're crafting your report, chances are you're going to provide some extra information that is really helpful in writing a good report. You don't want to talk about red eyes? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, under the a lot of times under recommendations, we do get the uh, eliminate red eyes would be their recommendation. Obviously, uh, we make a, a lot of money as a company, and that, that is beyond the scope of what I can handle. If you can bid away, great, but unfortunately, nobody is always going to be on banker's hours. Correct. One last thing, Sean, I wanted to bring up, and some people might recognize it from from the CBA and Safety Fast. But fatigue also does have a rather substantial uh, role in pairing construction when it comes to these schedules. Because again, right, you send a fatigue hazard report, that data is beneficial, it can move around into several different ways, and a lot of these can roll into pairing construction, which does kind of show a fix to the system, right? Right. What is a fatigue role when it comes to pairing construction on a month-to-month basis and then incorporating a safety fast as a program? So after crew planning takes all the flights and turns them into pairings, they have to run it through safety fast program, which is a a program designed to score your effectiveness. So in our contract, we have any pairings that score below 72 can't be published. So generally when they uh, construct all those pairings, there's a few that uh, don't meet that score and they they go through and manually rebuild those pairings to uh, make them score above that. So Safety Fast is a a program that combines a bunch of sleep studies and other data to give your effectiveness score, but there's some limits to that. It doesn't take into account, say you just got off a pairing the day before, it's not going to be able to score or predict your effectiveness for that next pairing effectively. It's just a model that, sure. that yeah. tries to assign it. It's one of the tools in the toolbox that we have to mitigate fatigue here. Would a great example of that be, you know, the reason why I got stuck with, you know, back-to-back red eyes or something with a, a short rest period in between? That's a good example of what you were just talking about? Yes, and part of our bidding strategies we have, you know, you can, you can waive no same-day pairings. Mm. You can have minimum days off between pairings that you can waive here. All those are going to contribute to your fatigue, which safety fast is not going to take an effect. It's looking at a snapshot of that one pairing and it's based on your base local time. So if you commute from a different time zone, your effectiveness isn't going to match the effectiveness score that the program is predicting. Very good. I think that's another good point to drive home is that safety fast, it's a great program to be able to identify and mitigate fatigue and shuffling trips around that and shuffling operating legs that occur within a pairing, right? Right. But it's never going to be able to look at that bridge between the two pairings 
predominantly where a pilot might find themselves fatigued. Right. And say there's the same, we do a red eye flight from LA to Kennedy that lands at, you know, 6 a.m. An East Coast pilot is going to score lower than the West Coast pilot for that because the East Coast pilot is flying all the way through their walkle period, whereas the West Coast pilot, even though it's the same flight, is going to score higher because they're only operating two hours into their walkle period. So that's another limitation of the program. I think the overall theme between Mike with ASAP, Sean, you fatigue, Blake, Central Air Safety, is that when it comes to required reporting, we are always ready and available to help when it comes to fatigue specific questions sean you and your committee are ready to go what's the the best possible way to get in touch with you guys should a pilot have a question at at, at any time about a fatiguing situation or scenario uh, the pdr is definitely the best way to get in contact with us and the pdr turnaround time especially for the fatigue committee is very quick <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> I've seen a, I've seen a lot of reports come in and transition to uh, closed after working with the pilot in in relatively short order. You guys are very busy when it comes to handling that program and to be able to respond to the pilot that quick. It it is definitely reliable. Blake for Central Air Safety General Safety Concerns X Y and Z again PDR system for for the Central Air Safety Committee. Correct. Correct. You can uh, we have a PDR for the Central Air Safety Committee. You can do that as well, and uh, we can respond via that. We also have our contact information on the b6alpha.org site. Uh, feel free to call any of our any of our uh, volunteers. Contact info is listed there. Uh, and then we also have uh, an email address that we uh, use for. Um, reviewing ASAP or FCR narratives. If you'd like a, a safety volunteer to look at it before it's submitted, and that is JBU review my report, all one word, at alpha.org as well. Before we go, uh, just final thoughts for you, Sean and and Blake, and, and I would toss it off to Mike, but as Mike is usually always busy, he's off to uh, his roles within the ASAP program. But uh, final thoughts, mentions as we close out here today on Red Report. My big thing, I just would like people to... Uh, Utilize the fatigue hazard report more. I think we can learn a lot of information from those. Blake, for you? Yeah, uh, hopefully uh, our fellow pilots have, have gotten the message from this podcast that, that we need the data. Uh, you know, we talk to a lot of pilots, and and, and as a fellow pilot, we, we get the venting of uh, issues they see in the operations or concerns that other pilots have and uh, problems. And, and the question is always, well, did you fill out a report? And... Um, and without that report, without that piece of data, uh, we can't, as uh, safety volunteers and as a Central Safety Committee, you know, try to push for action uh, with either the company or the FAA on any given issue. You know, we work hard. Uh, there's 40 safety, a little over 40 safety volunteers on the Central Safety Committee, and we work really hard to, one, make sure that the reports and the information is protected. Because obviously, as, as pilots, you're not going to put in a report if, if you feel like it's going to put you in any uh, unfair jeopardy and, and accountability. So we, we work hard on that. But the second thing, too, is none of us want to fill out a report and have it go into the ether of a black hole and never get action. So we work really hard to take that data and, and, and amplify that voice that you're giving us to, to enact action. So hopefully, uh, I know it's hard, and it's the last thing you think about when you set the brake and you're like, ah. Uh, I, I could fill out a report, but I could just go home and forget about it. Take the time to actually put in that report because that data point really adds up with other fellow pilots doing the same thing and allows us to enact good change. 
Fantastic. As we're closing out here on Ride Report, we've been discussing some of the biggest comprehensive changes within central air safety, also driving into a little bit more of the, uh, the finite differences between um, reporting and the uh, areas that we most commonly uh, encounter between ASAP and fatigue. If you have a an idea that you think you would love to hear on Ride Report, please send us a PDR and make sure to subscribe for future episodes so you get the notification as soon as it comes down. Once again, Blake Kelly, Sean King, Mike Borer, thank you guys so much for your time. We appreciate it, your expertise. We lean on you an awful lot, but you guys do an awful lot of work in carrying not just the safety of, of pilots, but in ensuring that and continuing through a safe operation every day. Thank you guys. Thanks, Jay. Nice to see you, JR. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Have a safe flight and file early and file often. Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpa for the union pilots of JetBlue.